Welcome to a very special episode of Tapas Here Learning. There's a bunch of reasons why this one's a one-off, so let me try and elaborate. First off, this is an interview with one of my oldest mentors, probably my very first in fact, and someone who eventually went on to be a very meaningful collaborator as well, even though for a very brief period of my musical journey. Secondly, this actually is an interview. Now, for those of you who've been around longer, you know that I stress your loading is not about interviews per se, the conversations. This one is an exception to that rule because it's actually a specific interview I had to do for my postgraduate research for my master's degree that I'm doing at the London College of Music. So there was a framework that I had to either to while doing this. Thirdly, this is a tribute to a somewhat controversial genre of uh, world music. There is additional material with this podcast on the blog and additional questions which I've actually sent to Ahmed Dutta to um, clarify a few points. So for those of you who really want to get into this, which I hope is a larger number by the way, please go check out the link where um, the article is mentioned. Last but not the least, we are sponsored by ourselves. So if you want to support this one-man independent show, please go subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. You can now also donate on the Tapasio Loading website and do come around to our academy, the Holistic Musician Academy, in case uh, you ever feel like checking out our courses, which by the way, you get a discount for through this podcast. So yeah, welcome back. And without much further ado, Amit Dutta speaking for D for Brother, unwitting pioneers in pre-internet India. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. Okay, and uh, we are on tape. Thanks for doing this, sir. Welcome, uh, welcome anytime. So what I'm working on for this thesis of mine is uh, the album D for Brother which um, mm-hmm. has had a very, very deep impact on me in my life for multiple reasons. Okay. And uh, I mean, that's a whole different... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm being open and transparent with my professor, with my uh, emotional relationship with it, and I'm obviously a little biased okay. towards it. But that being said, okay. there's a this analytical side which I would like to get into with your permission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, let's start with the overall sound of this. This was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the first official release of this album was in 91 or 92? Uh, I think if I remember, I think 91, yes, 91. You could be right on 92 also. Right, I'm on the Bandcamp page. Yeah. It says release yeah, January yeah. 1st, 92. But that, yeah. that already brings me to the first point of curiosity. Um, we have a, the only remaining version of this album at this point is the Bandcamp page, right? Mm-hmm. Which is also a lo-fi transfer. Very much. Of uh, the original tapes, um, which actually is very much in sync with the current trend. I mean, this whole tape lo-fi thing is very in, actually, ironically, at this point. Right. Um, but could you tell us a little about the original release? Because I have memories of cassette tapes. Uh, the, see, basically what we did initially was we used to make demo tapes that time a lot. Which mm-hmm. Hello, I lost you there for a minute. I'm Hello. so sorry. Yeah. I think yeah. Can you hear me now? Yes, I hear you now. My apologies. I think it's my Wi-Fi. Okay. Yeah, no worries. You were saying okay. that you used to make a lot of demo tapes at the time. 
That's correct. Yeah, and demos meaning we used to do the finished product like it's on our own, you know, interest. Uh, like even do the inlay card. We buy blank cassettes, record, and give them, you know, uh, share them with friends and stuff like that. Wow. So uh, that's how it started with the full package, and we were looking at it as if like a self-produced, uh, homespun kind of production, but mm. as a demo format. And then later we found out this record company, I think if I remember, Star Plus or some Plus, Music Plus or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And then we spoke to Kochuda, actually went to Bombay and figured out, it spoke to people and also their counterpart here in Calcutta. And they eventually brought it out, but it, then the company very soon packed up. So the promotion and everything, you know, went up the thin air. So it didn't really do that well, but it, yeah, it got distributed here and there. Now it seems like it's quite an iconic, legendary kind of, you know, niche kind of uh, pocket that is being circulated. Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two points I'd like to focus in on immediately. One, was it common for a record label to do this at the time? No, not this kind of music, and we are uh, now. Now at this time, I if I think look back, and I think we were much ahead of time Indeed. doing that kind of music. Uh, you know that world music kind of worldy, one world kind of thing. You know, like, and then later people came like you know uh, with percussions and lots of percussion, and people got freaked out with the visual part of it, but not really. The musical part of it, which Kochu, Kochu is to do, you know, like musical part. And of course, because he's to, he needed those instruments to play music. So he had many instruments, not to kind of show off and shock people visually. Mm. So, you know, so we were much ahead of time and not really thinking of any genre like that. We kind of, whatever caught our fancy incorporated music with taste and with whatever musical experience we had that time. This I'm talking about, I don't know, I mean. You know, for 30 years, 35 years back. Uh, and yeah. Uh, that's like before so, internet, before yeah. laptops, before digital recording. Yes. And these are the points I want to dig into because it's actually a mammoth, mammoth project. And uh, it's the kind of project which, you know, what you see now, the remnants are just the tip of the iceberg. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, there's layers and layers. I mean, um, and that's what I'd like to try and dig into. Um, w could you tell us a little about when these recordings started? Because they released in 92, but I believe you started working on them a lot earlier. Yeah, I think we started writing around 86, no, 87, 88, 89, around that time. Wow. But we went to the studio around uh, 91, I think. Right. 1991. Yeah. May I ask you what your writing process was like? You know what? Uh, very often, Kochu used to sit with the guitar and come up with ideas like chords and uh, some passage or some drone or some kind of feel. And uh, he would show me, can you play that and expand on that? So I would take that basic core idea and uh, expand on that. And then... Uh, and the one good thing about his writing was because he was not really aware of the so-called parameters of harmonic music. He would just go anywhere. And mm -hmm. that helped me to go outside the conventions. Uh, and it was pretty challenging also, you know. It's like 
a chord with one note sticking out on the guitar, which is first string open, because he just played it because physically possible. <laughs> I couldn't really figure out sometimes what chord it was, so therefore, you know, so I had to kind of completely based on instinct, which is, uh, which is actually should be done, you know. Mm. And uh, we 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 can you know that and and then I took the guitar and he would probably very often play a beat on the couch that we were sitting on. Wow. And uh, yeah with a matchbox as a snare drum or something like that. Uh, and then that kind of thing. And I remember when we used to, at that time, we were also uh, traveling with a band called Shiva. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were at this college in Madras called Christian College or something. And we were sitting like down, we had some downtime couple of years, or a couple of hours or something. And then we were sitting, Koju and I, before the sound check. And uh, they had a little park which had deer and all that. It was part of the reserve forest, that part. Uh -huh. So I remember I played these big long chords with very pastoral kind of sound. And we called it At A Distance, I remember. We, we wrote At A Distance like that. Mm. Uh, so that kind of thing, you know, I mean, it, it was all very organic. I mean, we were touring, we were sitting at home or, you know, just an idea. And, you know, it wasn't like any plan like, okay, let's do a music. Kind of some kind of form which is like this. It just kind of organically kind of flowed through us or, you know, uh, came out like that. Sounds like a very deep artistic and poetic process as opposed to a more clinical, conventional musician's process. It, it was, it was, actually it was. Mm. And uh, in the end, uh, I wanted to, even over the years when I kept, kept on playing, as I was learning myself, I wanted to keep that basic uh, simplicity in the music instead of put too much sophistication. You know, I wanted to keep somehow uh, the rustic rawness in the music. Mm. Uh, you know, to keep that. So even if we record those tunes now, I would like to keep it like that with, of course, the help of today's you know knowledge or whatever it is. You know. mm -hmm. So yeah, so that was... Well, I remember one of the tunes, they were since asking me how we would write. One of the tunes, uh, he's, he he tapped it on the guitar, like a tap. I didn't know what tapping was. I mean, I knew about Eddie Van Halen and tapping, but he actually played some... Uh, oh, uh, oh, in fact, he played with the drumstick on the guitar and he played a rhythm. And uh, he held some kind of weird chord on the left hand on the guitar. And he said, why didn't you play this kind of sound? Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like that. Yeah. Very open-minded. Yeah, very much so. Um, mm. Could we ask you, and for the record, where did you record this music? Where, this was in Calcutta. Yes, this was in a studio called Studio Vibrations, right? Which was owned by Usha Utu. Right. At which point did you folks decide to like hit the studios and start recording all the material you've been working on? Um, I think about. Two, three months after we kind of had enough material to go into the studio and record. Uh, I think, yeah. One of the first tunes we wrote, I think, Village X, I remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was one of the two. I actually, I was very um, sad to have not found it on the band camp page. It's one of my favorite songs. Uh, I think it should be on SoundCloud. Uh, I don't know. If I have it, I'll send the link to you. No worries, no worries. I was just looking into it. Um, so, uh, um, this, when you say three months, uh, so three months of rehearsals and writing sessions and you go 
hit the studio. That's correct. And you know that time rehearsals means it's not like going to a studio and rehearse. It was just very organic. Just he and I sitting on the couch with one acoustic guitar and him playing some beats on the stick. Beautiful. With drumsticks on the on the couch, or he's clapping, or just mouthing out the beat. Mm. Uh, you know, it was like quite un unrehearsed and not ready. And we kind of went into the studio and and figured out the parts as we played the record, you know the the tracks, uh, you know that kind of thing. So there was a sense of adventure and imagination about it. No one went with concrete pre-productions like most people do these days. You just went in with ideas. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you think that played a big role in the manner in which this uh, album remains timeless, as opposed to so many other world music acts, you know, that don't stand the test of time? Uh, I think it was because it was uh, we all we had was a melody line and some kind of harmonic structure and and a basic beat or a groove or a feel. Mm. But as we went in the studio, we were also discovering our thoughts and uh, ideas and innovating the tune, uh, delving in deeper into the tune ourselves. Mm. So that gave us a very spontaneous kind of fresh look towards it, and probably that energy is. helped us you know uh, to get those tunes like you're saying through the through time yeah what were the discrepancies like between how you thought things would sound like while practicing in the living room and how they eventually turned out to be were they large or were they did they turn out exactly how you thought they would sound like eventually well most times it was better than what we thought because in the studio we could layer and get a midi guitar and play some piano and you know mm-hmm. uh, another layer of acoustic guitar or percussion or whatever mm-hmm. but yeah but in a way we kind of somehow coach and i could kind of somehow hear it in our heads before going to the studio mm-hmm. like uh, i remember we were discussing the panning of the uh, production uh, in 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 the house before we hit the studio you know like we we said uh, if the congas are on the left or whatever we could have the uh, the maybe that bass drum Based on meaning that little, you know, like a marching drum kind of thing on the right or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, kind of had a sonic image in our minds vaguely. Mm-hmm. So that probably helped us. But of course, when you go into studio, it changes a little bit here and there uh, because you know. So that is what the studio. And very often we would book the studio for fifteen days. Wow. And record all the minus one tracks before we started doing concerts, rolling tapes, you know, like actual tapes. I know. That's. So, I want to get yeah. into that in a bit. Uh, yeah. So yeah. a very yeah. immersive experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, do you have any memories of any specific uh, musical? accidents or surprises during the time or did it all kind of align to how you thought it would be i'm kind of repeating my question but i just want to make sure i'm thorough yeah no no i mean no but you're actually you're right because i had both ex- two experiences both both experience one i remember uh, i i never knew those keyboard i played some chords on a cheap keyboard like a piano electric piano kind of sound Mm-hmm. and i didn't know those inversions will sound that great because very it kind of very close clustered milesish kind of oh. you know uh, uh, kind of thing i was hearing you know do you remember the model of the keyboard by any chance it was uh, you know what if i remember correctly it was a yamaha d d10 was it d10 a roll on d10 was yeah. it yeah. a roll on d10 yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. correct that's yeah. correct yeah, yeah. a roll on d10 yeah they yeah. were actually used on the miles 22 album 
Oh, mm. really? Yes, yeah, sir, you're onto something. Wow. Sorry, I interrupted you. You don't know, but that's an interesting piece of information for me. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, uh, again, we borrowed a MIDI guitar, Casio red looking MIDI guitar from a friend of us. And when we put that MIDI guitar through that Roland synth sound, and I played some stuff again with, uh, with those little miles kind of line uh, going through those chords, single line, very snaking through the chords. And I said, wow, no, that sounds really cool, which couldn't, we couldn't imagine at home because, you know, we, at home we didn't have that. Mm. Uh, so those kind of uh, the positive side of it. And the negative side, not really negative side, is, it's like uh, if I'm playing a solo and then the tape is running out and I could see the little last roll of the tape on the, on the Ampex 456 record, uh, two inch, uh, not two inch, uh, uh, one inch tape. Wow. And you have to finish your solo quickly, you know. <laughs> All oh this God. kind of fun, <laughs> yeah, yeah, those kind of things, yeah. Thanks for mentioning the model of the machine. I was I was going to pick your brain on that. Uh, uh-huh. that um, wow, the, what an experience to actually, you know, f- visually see your time running out on tape and being able to absolutely. Uh, it's yeah. it's amazing. I would have never thought something like that was going on when I listened to the solos because all of them are masterpieces in my opinion. This is some of your best work, yeah, the solistic. Work. Okay, thank you so much. Um, yeah. Do you uh, do you remember um, the kind of effect it had on you while being a soloist? It, do you think it kind of pushed you to give your best? Uh, in patches, it did, but uh, you know, a musician, how it is, it always comes out like a little depressed in a. You know, it's a funny feeling. You're always like unsatisfied kind of feeling. You know, I could have done better kind of feeling. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm sure you understand. You go through that feel all the time. You know. Sure. Like I still have that. Only 20 times a day. Yeah, I yeah. know. Um, yeah. But um, yeah. but I'm wondering, so in comparison to today's recording technology, where you could like record all day long as much as you want to, mm. How do you compare mm-hmm. the manner in which the two recording systems affect music, in your opinion? Well, uh, the way we recorded, especially the D4 Brother recording, the one we are talking about, I think it captures the moment in a m- much honest way. You know right. what I mean? Exactly. With all the all the mistakes and all the sadness and all the bright parts, good parts. It really captures for the moment and you don't have enough money to book the studio again or you don't have enough tape for whatever reason, uh, you know. Uh, and also when you're mixing, it's an eight, we recorded on an eight-track uh, Tascam uh, recorder. Wow. Uh, mixer. And uh, we had uh, six, three pairs of hands when we are mixing uh, because the engineer Efri mm-hmm. was mixing and then at the same time Ko- Kochu was mixing and I was also, so all three of us are, you know, panning. And, you know, also, um, since we had only eight tracks, we recorded, say, for example, the hand claps and the uh, tambourine on the same track. So when the hand claps came, we actually physically panned it on the fly on the left and mixed uh, uh, EQ differently on the fly as it was, as it was mixing down, uh, you know, because we had run out of tracks and stuff like that. So, yeah. Wow. It was experience. Uh, so so that's why you can hear all those mistakes and all the rough ed- edges and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And now yeah. we live in an age where these so-called mistakes are being reproduced digitally just to give it a certain vibe. I'm doing quote marks here. I know, I know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, uh, amazing. That's actually the question I was going to ask you on the recording techniques. Some of these songs, they have like way over eight tracks. Mm-hmm. So did you have a specific system for it? Like, did you put drums and percussion on a specific set of tracks and guitars and bass and others? What I did was I, ha- I had made a track sheet at home before I went to the studio. Mm. Uh, and then kind of, uh, I think if I remember correctly, we recorded drums with a demo and then we bounced it off to a studio track. And then we emptied the rest of the tracks and uh, and then we brought fresh tracks on that. I think, wow. you know, things like that. So it sounds like you already had a very serious set of experience as a recording artist and producer already by that time. Yeah, but you know that uh, if strangely... I haven't, I, by, by then I had not really been to the studio much, you know, recorded in the studio much really. Mm. I mean, yeah, a few times, but not really at the desk. But I could see and kind of figure out the possibilities at home and things like that. Yeah. How would you do and that? And this was, I used to do that. Yeah, how would you do uh, that? How would you, like, was it just uh, like, uh, um, like a... Um, just a thought experiment you just keep going deeper into on your own or uh, um, this is the part which fascinates me the most how would you visualize all of these things without the kind of home recording facilities we have today and that's the part i really need to make apparent to most people who are going to read this thesis mm-hmm. that it's not like you had a home recording setup yeah like in today's day and age there's so much you can already pre-produce at home mm-hmm. but you literally had just a guitar at home and pretty much and nothing else absolutely absolutely uh, you know what, I think a couple of times or a few times that I've been in the studio before, I kind of watched and, like you said, in my mind worked out the possibilities and made a track sheet uh, with the... And also I remember uh, the nature of each instrument I kept in mind also when I was making the track sheet. Uh, like, you know, I knew that when, when you transfer bounce tracks, you lose a generation. Mm. So... If you recorded something high, if you record, if you bounce it, it's going to be a little muddy. But I kept in mind that if it goes a little bit muddy, it won't matter. So I kept those tracks to be bounced later. You know, things like that. Amazing. Yeah. Yes, this is gold, man. Just FYI, to give, so you have a f- uh, basic feel of how we proceed. We have another 10 minutes. I'm going to ask you some sure. general questions on the album. Sure, sure. And then for the sure. next the um, next few minutes, uh, for about 20 to 30, I'm going to go through the individual songs and pick your brain on some of the questions. All right. Is, sure. that, is sure. that good sure. for you? Absolutely good, yeah. If uh, I remember those songs, though. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, yeah. as, as much as you remember. Anything, um, sure. you know, this is sure. uh, first-hand information, so all of it is absolutely valuable. Um, so here's the thing, and this is something my professor also um, was very curious about from the very beginning. I should tell you more about mm-hmm. it later. Um, what, why do you think, what, how did an album in pre-globalized India, in Kolkata, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ended up sounding like this what were the factors environmental and musical that made you play music like this because you don't really hear a stereotypical lineage of Indian music on this even though most most people who have serious roots in India will probably hear the Indian side to it yeah. but for uh, for the average listener they won't hear stereotypical lineages of Indian music how did that happen? I think you know it's a bit of a mix mix of a lot of things one is uh, both Kochu and I were very open minded as characters as musicians live along being musicians but even as characters we were like you know generally very open minded anything could work 
for us, you know. Uh, so whether and that kind of spilled into the music and also we were listening. I remember to, uh, artists like Special Effects, Shadow Facts, mm. and Steve Tibets, Steve Tibets, I think, mm. and tabla player called Mark Anderson. Mm-hmm. So you know, so they had very very open-minded sound soundscape, and it kind of interested us. You know, we could it, in 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 fact, what we thought. I remember discussing with Kochu, it it gives a, gave us more independence and free free flowing kind of thought instead of oh you're going out of the genre, so this that doesn't sound jazz or this doesn't sound Indian. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to bother anything like that. So. And so I think it was, we were more thinking like the global thought in our mind, very naturally, organically, and not really planning it out. So thinking globally without actually knowing that it was a label. That, that's correct, yes. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if there is a certain degree, because I remember um, uh, both of you were high school dropouts. Yes. Who went on to have two of the most important music careers. You're probably the founding generation of Indian independent music. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing there was a sense of anti-establishment around, and please correct me if I'm wrong, in some way or the other, you were yeah. breaking rules from the very beginning. Where was this coming from, this inherent need to break rules and in a very positive way without you know not just for being a rebel but you were creating really meaningful music breaking boundaries yes and there was and to the best of my knowledge there was no community of like-minded people to support you mm-hmm. there was no academic support no, no tutorship or something you didn't go to musical college so it's basically just two guys against the whole world on their own mm-hmm. what was going on mm-hmm. there? You know, actually, for us, it was very simple. Just follow instinct. Mm. You know, I mean, it just look. I mean, now at this age, I can look back and sound very philosophical and stuff like that. But just we didn't think much that time. But we just stuck to what we felt that we should do. Mm. You know, uh, and walked that path. And we didn't think of oh, what risk does it involve? Will it work or not? We didn't think that. You know, we just went on doing what our instinct told us to do, and 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 our weapon was super honesty. You know, uh, fearlessness. Super, yeah, and yeah, exactly. We were fearless, but we never thought we were fearless. We just being honest to what we were. You know, and that carried all the qualities of what a human being needs to put put on an art form. You know, which is honest or does it sound pseudo or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying it was perfect a piece of work which is incredibly impeccably played. There are mistakes, rough edges, everything. But what went across, like I think what you're digging at is the thought process, the mind image, you know, mm. the sonic vibe that uh, that we had. Do you think the lack of information, I mean, would you say at this point of your life, there were more pros to the lack of information, the being cut off from the rest of the world in the pre-globalized India? Did it give you more advantages or disadvantages? What, what do you think was the ratio at this point of your life? You mean technologically or harmonic knowledge or musical knowledge overall? Overall, as an artist, if you like put it all in one bag. Okay. Do you think... At the end of the day, at this phase of your career, because now we live in an age of information overload. It's you know, to find your Absolutely. own voice for a young artist in this day and age is a different yeah. kind of challenge. 
Uh, it's not about finding information, but you know, choosing it. So, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm hijacking this now. But for you personally, no, not at all. Yeah, uh, personally, yeah, do you yeah. think like between the pros and cons? Do you think the lack of information in, ended up more to your advantage or your disadvantage? Uh, there are again, uh, again, there are. Uh, see, if I, if I, if the tech worked, uh, I mean, if we had the tech then, maybe it would have sounded a little bit more closer to another another production mm-hmm. which so this is a positive side we, and we tried to get the best of what we had and in the bargain in the in the process we became innovative mm-hmm. so that is a pro side the the plus side the positive side and the other side is the negative side is um if i if we knew more musically or technologically probably we'd have put more sophisticated and more complex information and therefore maybe sometimes become not so appealing to a set of ears mm. you know what i mean yes absolutely uh, so that uh, that's another angle i always thought of that you know complexity doesn't some sophistication doesn't always grab a normal guy unless that you know that person is a studied person or or coming from a like an educated musician like you would catch that but i don't know <clears throat> a normal guy will get it well a lot of educated musicians don't get a, get a feel for it too sometimes yeah that's true too you know sometimes they can people can be overtly yeah. cerebral yeah. Uh, but thank you for the kind words my last question with regards to the overall um, space you folks were in artistically is um, how does it feel now approximately two generations later to see the current generation having so much ease of tech mm-hmm. um and have that kind of technology at their fingertips yeah. to make music that you put in literally years into to make well it's 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 good that they're learning it much faster mm-hmm. but they're definitely missing out somewhere something's in between yes you know they are grabbing onto the result but they're missing out on the ride of the process. Mm. Uh, so I think they're missing out a little bit. Not all, of course, there are exceptions. Of course. Yeah, I would think, uh, you know, enjoying the ride as you go along with your mistakes, it's it's more of a learning than just to grab the result and eat the pie, the, the icing on the cake, which is half the fun, I would think. Yeah. Not the entire thing, yeah. Very valuable feedback. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you with your permission I'm going to move into the tracks now. I have a few notes. Okay. Again, apologies for being so dry about it because I just want no, to get as all. much information. Yeah. Uh, um okay, let's start with uh, the first track on the Bandcamp version of the album. It's um uh, mm-hmm. uh actually yeah. before I get into that, I noticed except for the song Solo for Peace, all of the songs have a specific pattern. They start off in a specific mood yeah. and then end the second half of it ends almost on the polar opposite of the mood it starts off in that's yeah 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 right uh, all of them uh, was that something that happened consciously or do you think it's symbolic of something uh, i think it became symbolic later but as the process was like i said you know really organic we went into the studio we thought the song took another shape and it became another animal and wants to walk towards the direction mm-hmm. and we didn't stop it we let it go and it even if it was leaving the starting point we said let it go where it wants to go 
Mm. So it took another emotional character in the end, and we left it at that. So probably that's the reason, uh, you know. Uh, also, maybe that that came from the inexperience of studio work, so we couldn't control it. Uh, but in a way, it's good also that you don't control it. It doesn't sound inexperienced to my ear at all. Just FYI, uh-huh. um, but. At this phase of your career, what would you, as in, with all the distance you've had over the years now, what would you personally think was the symbolism of this night and day kind of contrast in the compositional structure? It's like uh, it's like the ever-changing quality of our life, really. You know, mm. I remember you know saying that to my students when I taught, and even now I believe the only constant thing in our lives are. the change that we have every day mm-hmm. every moment even our own personal thoughts change our beliefs change so probably that is a symbolical thing that it carries those tunes that is always morphing into something else a caterpillar morphs into a butterfly and dies in two days mm-hmm. you know uh, so it's this beautiful jittery flying but suddenly become silent and like a vacuum so again there's a change mm. so these all interconnected and i think that's where the music is actually and we only use it as our uh, device of sound and he could use it as writing words or someone in uses with colors but it's the same lesson really beautiful yeah Yeah, it's like the yin and yang, right? It's the masculine, feminine. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's the feeling I get as yeah. well. Uh, is there? Um, and I'm wondering here because I happen to know since I did apprentice with both of you in the early stage of my uh, musical journey, mm-hmm. I also happen to know that even though both of you were, you grew up together and uh, were. Uh, monster musicians in your own right. You also had very diverse influences, and at some point, you also had very different influences. Do you think that played a role in the contrast as well? Uh, that time uh, it did, did it did, but that time it was still uh, we were still young, and uh, uh, we were still not really uh, what's the word uh, ripe in with our own styles. so we were still uh, in the liquid form so it was easy to mix together you mm. know what i mean absolutely yes yeah, so i think that way like he was more percussion latin beats mm-hmm. he like me- me- melodies which are a little bit more simple and straight to the heart mm-hmm. but i kind of somehow like more angular kind of things uh, which is not really melodic in the common way of thinking Mm-hmm. Uh, I always like this jagged, uh, broken pieces of glass kind of idea. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, but somehow in the music, it like for example, the uh, the villages, but that kind of backbeat, Kochu the uh, Kochu will never ever play. I mean, you know, he only played because the melody suggests that. Yeah, uh, he doesn't play a rock beat here. It's probably the yeah. only official documentation of him playing a backbeat. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, like a quintessential uh, rock backbeat. Absolutely, yeah. But but that's exactly it. I also feel like both of you were stretching each other's boundaries in a positive way, which kind of gave you that extra energy um, to the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of you were uh, playing always slightly out of your comfort zone, which kind of yeah. made it some uh, gave it an edge. Or correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, I was, I was, you know, especially I would think I was slightly outside of my comfort zone more than Kochu was because 
I was I I remember I used to feel nervous playing with him because he was such a deep. Uh, he's a person that can go understood his emotions and his musical feelings very deeply, and he could express it. So to be able to stand up to that, I always felt felt uh, nervous, not physically, but emotional. Like I would always think, am I giving that emotional value to what he was expecting from me as a melodic? Uh, or melodicist you know mm-hmm. what i mean yes I, i know exactly what you mean i've i've been there myself yeah. it's you feel yeah. very exposed and vul- like in a good way you know you know he goes yeah. that yeah. kind of presence where you know you can't bullshit this guy yeah i know you know immediately yeah. and it's yeah. like even if you tried it but just uh, yeah and uh, it was almost for me personally you um, I mean i'm just sharing my side a little bit sure. and sure it was always a very cathartic experience as well being in his presence mm. uh, yeah like um he wasn't much for social niceties and bs like that straight to yeah, music I know. Yeah. yeah um yeah thanks for sharing that let's hit the songs a little um nilima starts up with these beautiful arpeggiated chords and the, the first thing which yeah. strikes me is where does this you know where were you drawing your influences for these very deep expansive harmonic structures what were you listening to at the time um I was that time listening to mainly radio music, you know, like uh, really? and the old records that, yeah, huh. radio. I, I don't mean stylistically, whatever came through radio, and hmm. of course that time I was listening to a lot of these uh, uh, kind of jazz, not the tra- not the Miles and the Coltrane jazz that I, I always listened to, but I was listening to people who were trying to more, exp- you know, like I remember this uh, fractured fairy tales. Uh, one album called Fractured Fairy Tales by Tim Byrne mm. and that kind of influenced me a lot you know because I was thinking shit you know this is like noise oh I, I Onet Coleman was another guy really? uh, song x yeah Amazing. song x that album yeah Beautiful. and don cherry so these out guys you know and uh, it, it sounds like chaos but it's also music of life somewhere you know like it's all emotional gestures so yeah go ahead absolutely yes i mean mm-hmm. on the technical level the, the, a lot of the voicings you play are very reminiscent of mclaughlin during his shakti years it is it is yes yeah. was that something you were listening to as well or is that just pure coincidence no i was listening to mahavishnu as well i was i heard mclaughlin live calcutta before that oh, okay and i always had that acoustic heart mm-hmm. you know electric a guitar has another hip portion to it but but acoustic somehow has that more i don't know more organic heart to it i mean not taking away anything from the electric i love electric so that also had to be those arpeggios basically i wanted to create something like a like a vast space because we are talking about nilima which is eventually the color of the sky mm. uh, That that makes a lot of sense. I got to pick your brain on this though. I find you're one mm-hmm. of the most underrated bass players I've ever heard. I think so. Absolutely. And this <laughs> this song and this entire album is just played for that. So um t- talk us through a, a, this a little you're playing um if memory serves me well you you played a custom made four string fretless on most of this album
Yes, yes, yes. And a jazz bass, which I borrowed from my friend, okay. from the engineer. The in fact, the engineer had the, the bass. Okay. Do you remember which songs you played the jazz bass on? Because I only remember hearing the fretless. Uh, mostly a uh, fretless. I played a little bit on this tune called Chandelier, uh, the Crystal Chandelier. This tune. Yes. It has a long name. That one. In fact, on that I played uh, two bass: one a five-string bass and a fretless bass. Oh, uh, right. Thanks for that. Yeah, I'm playing. Yeah, I'm playing on Nilima also. Yes, yes, if I remember correctly. Yes. So, from yeah. a compositional point of view, I'm very curious because a lot of guitar players end up sounding like they're playing guitar on bass, but you're one of the animals mm-hmm. to that syndrome. So, has your approach to bass and guitar always been different from a headspace perspective? Yes, I mean, I I knew. See, firstly, I cannot play physically more because I am not. I can't play bass. I'm I'm bad. I'm that way physically, but conceptually, yes, I could tell even a bass player what to play because conceptually, all you need to be is a musician and not really a bass player. Bass player in morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I could play what I could hear as a bass player uh, with minimalistic but effective and doing the job. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So that kind of approach I took, and anything that I played physically was completely limited to my my own capacity. I didn't even try to stretch outside because I haven't. I never practiced bass or anything. Well, that specific point is something I'd like to pick your brain at a different um, when you when I have you on my podcast because I would beg to differ. I think. Uh, I mean, um, you obviously have very high technical standards uh, for bass to say that you can't play because um, that simply isn't true. You, you're very technically proficient, and um, but I'm I'm guessing in comparison to your guitar technique, you found yourself uh, you were probably falling short of your own uh, aspirations. I'm guessing uh, yeah. that's something we could yeah. get into eventually. But I'm guessing that those limitations technically on bass. Do you think they helped mm-hmm. you in uh, not? I mean, for lack of a better term, compensating with more intelligence yeah. in the manner in which you approached bass. Yeah, I can't help but wonder at the time if that so-called I'm doing quote unquote technical limitation is what exactly pushed you to be a better bass player instead of a soloist playing bass. Yes, it did. I mean, you're actually bang on right. But having said that. Uh, <clears throat> Even if I even if I had the proficiency and the physicality, I would still play it the way I played. I believe you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, I I try not to overtake the musicality with my physical ability or whatever it is. You know, for whatever, whether it's guitar or bass or whatever. For any musician, I think that should be it. Yeah, I mean, Christian McBride uh, makes this comparison of the bass being the ground in a room. You don't notice. It un- unless it's gone. Yeah, very true. Very true. It's also like if the ground is always shaking, that's not a very that's not a very organic space to be in, right? It's meant to be a sense of groundedness. Absolutely. And be very uh, measured in the manner in which it moves or stays yeah, there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But 
why did he stop playing bass? Because this is one basic, pretty much the last album, and even later on in your solo endeavors, you don't play any bass anymore. Why? What happened there? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe that time we found other bass players. You know, it it started like you know when we are playing live, someone has to play bass. So we called in Lou and you know whatever, and they played bass. And then onwards, uh, we. Uh, other bass players came along and they you know young guys and we had a band so you know so the bass player will play the bass part but even though anything seri- any any serious work i knew that uh i wish i could play that part you know what i mean mm-hmm. <laughs> but because it was the bass player bass player in the room and recording so he or she did it he most of the time yeah okay Uh, I understand. Um, yeah, I'd like to pick your brain more on this uh, on, on on another interview. So now I'll move on um, to the second half of the song in Nilima. Sure. It moves on from a four four and transitions into a six eight towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm wondering, um, any intel on what kind of rhythmic influences were going on um, in Monuchidatta's head, uh, Kochida's head? Um, because it, it's actually very sophisticated what he's doing there. The transition from four four into six eight, you don't really feel it unless you're actually like looking at it from an analytical point of view. I think if I remember correctly, uh, when we were uh, kind of going through the tune and uh, thinking of uh, in the end to flow, I played an arpeggio which kind of uh, fitted the grid of six with very, very, like I said, that morph into that six from mm-hmm. the four. Mm-hmm. And I think he said, uh, let's let's keep that, and you keep playing that, and we won't show it obviously, but we'll keep that six feel in the end. I think that's how it happened. Beautiful. Uh, if I remember correctly, yeah. Beautiful. Um, secret marriage of the candles on the crystal chandelier. Like, needless to say, I have yeah. to pick your brain. What? Where did that title come from? That title. Yeah. Well, the chandeliers came from the house because we had those huge chandeliers in the house. But mm. you know, I, my the scene. You know, the the whole title of the scene. I couldn't express it till I said the whole thing. You know, imagine mm. how beautiful the scene is. Is a celebration going on up in the ceiling, like this, which is beyond your visual uh, parameters? But it's secret. That's why. But it's crystal. It's as pure as water or diamond or so. And that's why the symbolical thing is chandeliers. You know, it's like, and they're marrying. Marrying means unite. You know, we always fucking fighting all the time. Mm. Uh, so it's that's that's the energy, and that's why I kept. That dance feel in the tune, so that it's like fl- floricking. You know what I mean? It's like the fairies floric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you have all these loopish textures going on the guitar. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, again, that's the kind of thing that really needs to be documented. You know, it. You didn't. Re- it's not like you could just plug in a Line Six loop machine or Ableton or something. Uh, I mean, yeah. that was some pretty complex signal chaining back in the day. Do you remember what you used to make those loops? Yes, I did it on a digital delay DD3, a Boss, a Roland DD3. It was one of those white pedals, right. white and blue pedals. Ah, I remember. Oh, so, yeah, you had that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you yeah. must have delved really deep into that thing and to have made those. Yeah, changes. yeah, yeah. And I, I even back in the day, I used to kind of 
recorded and fooled with the with the time so that the the pitch goes up you know like we would you know like what they have now in electronic music and stuff like that so do you remember your fx chain the one you were using at the time in and the studio all i had time. was yeah but all i had was uh, you know exactly what what i used to play live in you must have seen is like a bcb6 like a compressor overdrive uh, maybe an orange distortion uh a boss uh, distortion and maybe i at one point had a black metalizer all roland wow. and then a chorus uh, uh, chorus and a octave and a delay that's it so all single note uh, sorry single unit effects so, uh, single unit storm boxes and very you know ordinary not nothing boutique or anything like that what, what amp were you using my amp was i think a fender deluxe 85 beautiful uh no deluxe 65 deluxe 65 i think it's called yeah and was this the stratocaster you were using for the textures as well yes 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 that strat that sunburst brown set which is lying on my bed right now looking at me amazing yeah. say hello yeah this is one of the very few tracks where you hear coach uh, the tablas yes want to start off with why do we not hear him playing tablas later on in his career if you had any intel on that and secondly uh, you know he manages to do something which especially at the time was very very rare for someone playing tablas he keeps a groove he doesn't play a solo he maintains a groove so it's really you can see him utilizing a global perspective towards rhythm and drums per se generally on a tabla to yeah. the best yeah. of my knowledge no one else had done that before at least in india so uh, do, can you give us some, some intel on how that journey might have been for him sure you know i mean like i tell it told you i mean we were listening to uh, mark and this guy called mark anderson who played i think he's played with uh, oregon i think the band oregon uh and uh, also steve tibets and shadow facts and special effects i think all he was around that time he was playing with these cats you know like that kind of very pastel painting kind of uh, tabla playing unlike indian pandits who are playing 19 over 17 or whatever it is you know mm. so he was kind of using the 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 watery flowing bendy texture of the instrument within the you know the harmonic simple harmonic structure of what we are playing then but i tell you i'll give you a side story you know badol roy yes. uh, who used to play with miles yes uh, he used to we were quite friendly and he used to come over and all that and he once told me the story i mean when he first went there he was badol roy a tabla player young tabla player from kolkata mm-hmm. and from india and he could play on any beat on in 13 17 and miles asked him to play this same groove for 64 bars or whatever you know 100 whatever bars mm-hmm. and he told me here i was i'm standing here he's saying i'm playing tabla and this monster giant from america this guy is telling me just play that one four four groove why i mean here i am i can play anything i'm a tabla player trained tabla player and no fractions and beats and 
and then he said later when i'm 70 he's telling me this story when he was 70 almost he said now i realize he saw loops and electronic music and groove even then yes so if kochuda thought no one will say kochuda thought but miles said it's a big thing wow how visionary he is but a guy from kolkata can also see it exactly you know exactly. that is exactly what i'm pointing towards yeah i'm in absolute agreement yeah do you remember how his environment at the time uh, reacted to his tabla playing because i'm guessing he was mostly self taught yeah. and breaking a lot of conventions yeah. so how did local tabla players react to this approach to the tabla i have memories i mean see i as you know i don't know if you remember in kolkata there there was a specific divide and the western musicians and the bangla studio classical world oh that's very interesting yeah yeah it was it, could you tell us a little more about this actually i've only been on the fringes yeah i know i know exactly so when we were growing up uh, the south and the, cent- the the hippest was central calcutta where we grew up the calcutta 16 mm. where the anglos and the english boys and the english medium bengalis and you know we are playing western guitar and rock and roll and jazz whatever and the south was more the intellectual westerners they were listening to john lennon and, you know the intellectual music kind of thing right and the north was completely into the yeah i mean i could write a page on this really i didn't even know this yeah kolkata really had this now that you mention it realize of course that's that's why i feel the way i do and depending on which part of the city i am in yeah 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 keep going sorry i interrupted you yeah you know it and the north was more the the studio bangla hemonto uh, mukhi and you know the the movie studio music the movie scene and all that kind of thing and of course the classical in the classical music so they were not listening to what these we were doing from this part of town so the ustad and the pandits never heard us and whoever heard a little bit they couldn't point a finger at us because we are not even trying to play anything like a pandit would do and break down a beat into you know we just playing a basic simple groove right so it, the approach itself was uh you know that is so interesting in this current day and age where so many especially a lot of um uh musicians from the west <laughs> who have attempted mm-hmm. to play music um influenced by indian music also get a lot of criticism in this day and age yeah. some of them rightfully so some of them not rightfully so yeah. so uh, you know looking back upon like playing a so called ancestral instrument but taking influences from white musicians mm-hmm. do you see the irony in it and how do you feel about the irony one problem i noticed and i could say it now very boldly and i don't care because um please do indian musicians always thought not overall again you know there are exceptions but a tabla player for example would think you know you got to always play a very like a virtuistic kind of manner mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you can do this and you can do like physically but when it comes to mellow down and play a groove a four four groove they don't really value that much so right. very often their emotional values are missing to my mind you know they're only busy showing their capacity or extending their what they can do and outdoing the other one and that kind of vibe i get because yeah okay in a in a one hour show you could do your virtuoso for 20 minutes and play for the music the rest of it and mm-hmm. it doesn't come out that way it is always check me out kind of thing so they sound cheesy and cheap to me so if a white guy uh, uh, goes 
uh, you know and 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 tell them to do something on the tabla then they'll say okay what do you know you're from outside right but instead of that why didn't you take the emotional part which he has to share yes you know yes i hear you I know exactly what you mean. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing. I really appreciate You're that. Welcome. You're almost yeah. done. I yeah. want to respect your time. Um, you've no taken worries. so much time for this. I just want to go through the last three songs quickly. Sure. Um, sure. Solo for Peace. This is uh, probably the first official showpiece for what a, what a, not just monstrous, like virtuosic conga player, but also poetic musician, Monajit Dutta was. Because, you know, uh, you know, speaking of virtuosity, you know, this is a fine example of where virtuosity isn't being displayed just for virtuosity's sake. It's an entire composition that plays, you know, that whole solo set of story. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you remember how you recorded that? Because you seem very much part of that song. It doesn't seem like conga solo and overdubs. So do you remember how you tracked that song? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I remember we moved the congas from the small room to the big room because we wanted to use that big sound uh, thing and we sat we sat him down in the middle of the room and then I think we just put off every light and just put the light on top of him. Wow. Uh, just to get, get into that little space, you know. Yeah. And then we let him play and then before that, I think we I took a smoke break and we went out and we discussed that and uh, there's a mo uh, let that there be two or three movements in the in the part so i could i could emulate that with some parts later i think i played some noises behind or something like that if i remember correctly and some synth sounds exactly. uh, i think yes yeah and you, so, uh, you took a solo of the synth horn as well which you, which, you know get the minds mm. kind of thing that's correct that's correct indeed yeah so and that and that's it and he went we came in and, uh, and he, he took the take uh, maybe the i think that was the only take that he did and did he uh, have the drone underneath him when he was playing or was it just the congas at first no no we uh, just congas and he could imagine that's what i'm saying no he could very deeply understand his own music so later when i put the drone and everything it, it just matched uh, what he was thought uh, what he was thinking you know there's a paradox in the title because you know the title is solo for peace but it's a very fierce fierce you know usually when people hear a title like solo for peace they probably expect something very mellow and quiet and this is a guy being as fiery as it can any idea you know what what was the artistic vision behind that what do you think the statement behind that was see the it's a solo conga solo so it was like a you know pun on that title mm -hmm. but uh, soul we said i, I remember title i put the title in in this in the piece mm -hmm. soul o for peace that means you know when you kneel down on your knees you go down on your knees and you ask the heavens give us peace mm -hmm. so the is fiery because he's 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 fighting for peace he's not enjoying peace he's wanting peace desperately yes so he's asking these questions very strongly. That's why he's got that fire in his playing. Do you remember the political climate around you at the time for have for this emotion to have come through? What was the source of this sense of uh, this longing for peace, or was it just a timeless theme? Um, that probably is a timeless thing, but. Uh, you know, probably Kochu, we never discussed that, but now that I think uh, maybe 
his parents separating probably that is the source of his thought maybe i'm just guessing mm. you know yes uh, and my mom bringing him up and uh, not that he had any regrets but you know how human endorphins flow you know what i mean <laughs> of course and also we were uh, going through this uh, not that we suffered it but you know this whole upheaval of this is not our culture in kolkata and western music is not our culture and mm. opera sanskriti and all that kind of thing you know so mm. and also he was a very peace loving that guy kuchu was as you know he's he's always uh, no matter if even if nothing was happening in our immediate uh, atmosphere if anything was happening in cuba or africa he would take it on his own and he would pray that you know that place that place becomes peaceful and so it was like a general prayer for peace anyway you know mm, very sensitive empathic soul yeah thank you for sharing that i really appreciate no last song on the list uma through the woods of the afternoon yeah um this actually almost sounds reflective of your original songwriting process it sounds like two guys are yes. in their living room and jamming recorded it too apart from the overdub absolutely okay absolutely we just sat across and we just played it beautiful yeah what kind of a room were you in like was it this the big like central room or were you in separate concert uh, i think this was no i was in a, another like a uh, this time i think we never used gobos mm. we i went to another room and through a glass you know the, how they have these glass windows i could see him and i set him up close to me mm-hmm. so i could get his vibe the flow a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, we just looked at each other through the glass window and played uh, that tune yeah this song is also very reflective of your very diverse harmonic influences this is i, I mean this is my impression because for most of the yeah. other songs you hear the jazz jazz fusion influences you have been deeply influenced by here uh, this is a very interesting track the riff it goes into in the b part is based on a dorian scale and then uh, when you're soloing over it you're constantly doing modal interchange between dorian and aeolian sorry i'm getting so technical which to uh, yeah. today is one of the hip, you know like a hip move to do the modal interchange thing at the time yeah. Yeah. did you know you were doing yeah. like a hip move or was it we just going by ear you're also pivoting you're playing like bach like lines at a point at like around uh, at 120 wow pivot, uh, i mean you know my music better than i do man well, well <laughs> because i'm writing a thesis on this yeah, 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 so yeah. what i'm wondering is how aware were you of the like the technical the theoretical aspect to this or was it all organic uh well it uh, well see okay 
Now, that's a great question. You know what? I mean, the title, we, one thing with Deepa Brother, we always, almost, almost halfway through the song, we had gotten the title by then, you know? So it helped us to, to keep the mood going with the title. Mm. So, Umna through the woods of afternoon means if you're walking through an afternoon, you're kind of half drunk with cheap booze, the hooch. Oh, and you're kind man. of just going, um, you know, just walking through that boredom and that monotony rhythm, mm. rhythmic monotony. Mm, 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 you're going through. And it could be Africa, it could be Satal Pargona, it could be anywhere in the world, that mood, you know what I mean? A warm equatorial kind of sun. Exactly. Uh, I was about to say an equatorial Yeah. Mood. Probably be different in century. Yeah. Or something, but yes, I hear you. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. That warm, you know, sweaty, smelly kind of thing. So we wanted to keep that. And I initially started with the, like a blues lick, like a Hendrix. It Actually, it's coming from Hendrix. Right. You know? Okay. Okay, that makes sense. In a very E kind of Hendrixy lick. But then I knew I was doing this modal interchange or whatever, but I didn't think as I was playing and I was just telling constantly that this guy is a drunk guy. Let me just flow wherever my instinct takes me and not think of right and wrong. Mm. And especially we didn't have another backup chord player. So I was out of that harmonic risk. Ah, oh, gotcha. So also this song, it doesn't really actually have a bass during the solo part, right? If, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I think it comes bump. It comes towards the end, I think. There's a little figure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, my last question overall, and this is uh, like we're done with the songs. The one thing that is the most striking for me, this personally, is the level of intricacy. In your articulation, both you and Kojuda, that is like up there. I mean, you, um, I happen to know through prior discussions as well and through interview that these were very much your formative years on one level. Yes. And one hears the experimenting and the stretching of boundaries. But the one thing that was up there with anyone else, any other musician, any corner of the globe, was your articulation and your expressiveness. Both of you, you're like up there. You could have been there with anyone else. Where did that come from? How did two guys in Kolkata who basically only had each other to really kind of learn their shit and with zero like-minded community around, zero form of tutelage or tutorship from anyone else. It, it, it is no comparison whatsoever. Like even like someone from a low-income background today in India can has access to YouTube. You had nothing. No. Yeah. How did he end up sounding, playing at that level at that time with being completely cut off? This is the one thing I cannot wrap my head around. Um. Shit. I mean. I guess, you know what, I mean, just, you know, I mean, it's just being as honest and as close to your own consciousness, you know, you know, I mean, to put it in a very plain way, I think it's to, to, to chase what you really hearing in your head, uh, or at least trying for it, that kind of thing. 
this might be a stupid question, but did you have a system <laughs> for actually being in constant touch? Because this is, the, it's, this sounds like a result of not just like one one-off realization, but a dedicated, disciplined practice. So what was the system you based this practice on? I mean, the, uh, when, when, when we practice together as a band, as a duo, or Your just general, general trajectory or, uh, or uh, journey as a practitioner, like a music, you know, artist as a practitioner, what's the system that's given you that degree of depth in the articulation and expressiveness? Because, I mean, you could learn, you could get a PhD today, but still not understand articulation and expressiveness. And there's, there are a lot of examples of that. So it's definitely not, you know, digesting information. There's a, there's a different side to it. So what, how did you crack that code? Both of you. I think it is mostly... Uh, it's like from not from inside to the outside. I think for me personally, I, I'm sure it was the same for Kochu. From the outside to the inside kind of thing, which is what I mean by saying that is, uh, if you hear the greats, no matter whether it could be Bilalat Khan, Ravi Shankar, Nikhil Banerjee, Miles, McLaughlin, and then taking that outside energy and listening to yourself and trying to kind of be as close as that expression, I don't mean the notes or the riff or the lick. I mean that expression, you know, that, that life. Exactly. Uh, and I was never the one, I mean, of course, you know, but to put it formally, I was never one that I was like a classical player. Like, okay, today I'm going to do arpeggios. Next hour, I'm going to do scales. And, you know, you know, I was never like really like that. I mean, I would do something and if I, my feeling was towards it, to do three hours, I will carry on doing that. But what I was chasing at that point was coming as close as what I was wishing that to be by the influence of the external greats, you know, that came into my body or mm -hmm. my soul or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's all very honest trying, I think, to put it in very simple words. Yeah, yeah. It's as simple and complex as that. Yeah. And remember, especially as you know, our instrument between us and the instrument, uh, this only that point zero whatever that string is, you know, and, you know, there's nothing in between. So you're as close, but you're very far at the same time, you know, yeah. and a piano player like you, you're directly touching the keys with your finger. There's nothing in between, but yet you're still, you know, fighting for something that you want to achieve. Yeah. So all that, that, that's quite romantic, I think. We are all terribly romantic and people, eventually. Actually. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, rom, the, yeah. The, the incessant romanticism is probably, yeah, that actually yeah. helps a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry, there's one last question I had. I'm, I'm, I knew I promised I was going to uh, let you go. Yeah. But there is one no, last no, no, question no I don't want to let you go without, which is... Uh, there is another aspect to this entire album, which is the live implementation of it, which is history making. Because you folks went, I know you, there was someone who would sit in on bass every now and then, but but uh, elementarily it was just you and Kochida who would go on stage and play with backing yeah. tapes. 
And this is way before time coding, way before doors, forget Ableton or laptops. That is a mammoth, mammoth vision and a mammoth risky project, especially with the kind of sound engineers you were working who were nowhere close to being trained to understanding what the hell was going on. Yeah, I know. Where did that process start? When did you decide to do this? Okay, we're gonna. When did that moment of madness happen? When you thought, okay, we're gonna do this. We're gonna go on stage, like hire auditoriums from our own budget, and put up a concert where we play with backing tape, something that's never really been done in the city or even the country, maybe. Playing yeah. music that's ne- that doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, I think about ninety three, around that time, ninety two, ninety three, we started thinking, and then I don't know which year we started playing. But around that time, we started thinking and again booked ourselves into the same studio for about 15, 20 days and record about 105 backing tracks. Wow. Uh, yeah. And in fact, you know what, TL, this is just for your own interest. I managed to get the, the whole, uh, the, the spools. It's lying at my place now. No way. Uh, yeah. I have to pick you. Okay, we have to talk about this later on once we, this is. Yeah. Because right. I've been. Clean it up and I don't yeah. Yeah, we need to talk about this uh, later on. Wow. So you actually like what people would basically do on a laptop. You went in and hired a studio for two weeks to just record those backing tracks again. That's correct. Yes. How do you feel at this point of your life about you know all of this information being completely undocumented? Does that does that bother you ever, or uh, is it just the way it is? You know, uh, well, no, it does cross my mind here and there, but it doesn't make me sad. But I'm feeling happy at the same time that you're documenting it right now. Yeah, um, uh, yeah it is some energy that's been wasted in the country. And that's why I always thought Kochu was a jewel that was never recognized by the country. You know, we definitely lost. I completely agree. Uh, and there are up to up to, at this point there are almost up to two generations whose musical lineage traced back to both you and him um, and in your case I mean, at least some of your work has been documented by publications yeah. in his case it's yeah. zero yeah I know pretty much I know which is uh, uh, something that really needs to be talked about so uh, yeah yeah thank yeah. you for the record and stopping the recording gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out this is a labor of love one i hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating and having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect much love and talk soon just another voice out in